There's another one you don't want to hear. Frankly, neither do I. Right now on the Power Chord Hour, it is my absolute pleasure to be talking with musician, writer, actor, and original Violent Femmes drummer, Victor DiLorenzo. We're going to be celebrating the Violent Femmes' fifth studio album, Why Do Birds Sing?, which turns 30 this year, or has turned 30, I should say. And uh, we're going to talk about the making of that record, discuss uh, Victor's current band, 1913, see what he is up to. I know he stays quite busy with a bunch of different stuff, so I'm excited to get into it. Victor, how are you? Anthony, I am doing fantastic. It's it's great to be speaking with you today. I am uh, I'm very excited for this. Like I like I told you before, looking really forward to it. I love this record, and uh, I love a lot of stuff you've done. And we're gonna get into that. But first, I mean, to like really start at the be- like really start at the beginning with you. I want to ask your beginnings in music. Like, were drums your very first instrument? My very first instrument in grade school was viola. Um, I had a wonderful music teacher, Mr. Upperkopf, and we studied uh, viola and also, if you can believe it, the tin whistle. <laughs> <laughs> nice. So those those are my two starting instruments. And the only reason I ended up playing drums, or, or the drum set in particular, was because I had um, received a phone call uh, from my cousin one afternoon, and this was when I was about maybe 16 years old. And he let me know that a friend of his was going to Vietnam and he had a drum set that was for sale. And he wanted to know if I knew anybody that might be interested in buying this drum set to help out his friend. And I said, well, I don't really know anybody that I could turn on to as as far as buying the drum set. But but I think I might be interested. And I I couldn't even believe that I was saying that because (laughs) I never really had any inclination to play drums before. But. Maybe I was just feeling a sense of goodwill that day, but I, I said I would buy the drum set. So for $350, I bought this beautiful, probably uh, early 60s Slingerland four-piece drum set with cymbals. Beautiful. It was like a black oyster pearl color. And it sat in my parents' basement for about three weeks <laughs> when I would come home from school and I would look at it in the corner and I would uh, just think, well, maybe someday I'm going to be able to realize how to set this thing up and maybe play some music on it. But I, I was in the dark about even how to set it up. So finally, I convinced a friend of mine who was a drummer to come over and help me set up the drum set, which he did. And then I just started uh, the usual thing that a lot of people do when they start playing an instrument. I started playing along to recordings. And I found that I had a facility for the drum set So then I got serious about it, and I started studying with a great teacher in my hometown of Racine, Wisconsin, who was named Joe Police. And he was a big band drummer in the 40s and 50s in Chicago. So he got my uh, reading together, my as far as reading rhythmic notation. And he also introduced me to the beauty and artistry of playing the brushes in in a jazz context, which then I brought over into the rock world and bastardized that. And that's that's kind of what I was known for in the Violent Femmes is, is playing a lot of brushes. 
that's really cool. And like, like what age was that then that you started like really getting into drums then? Well, probably my 16th, uh, uh, going into the 17th year. And, uh, I, I really fell in love with the drum set and, and especially a lot of, um, the drummers who were still around and still working quite a bit at that time, whether it be, uh, we'll say someone like Buddy Rich, who who I wasn't really that interested in. I could certainly respect his his speed and his dexterity, but I was more into the uh, African American drummers like Tony Williams and Elvin Jones and Max Roach and Don Moyet from the Art Ensemble and Art Blakey and I mean the list goes on and on and on. But I was really influenced by African American drummers. That's awesome. Like that. And it also seems like the, the learning you got and like where your influences has come from, like you really do have a style of your own, I think in the rock world. Like, did you, have you ran into many other like drummers like through like the, during your violent femmes day and stuff who had that kind of background? I mean, I feel like that's a pretty unique background for, uh, you know, like you said earlier, bringing it into the rock world, you know, that's, that's pretty unique. Well, I tell you at that time, a lot of the drummers that I knew and I was working with in town here in Milwaukee, some of the ones I was attracted to were jazz drummers. And I, I did study here in town with, with a jazz drummer. And then I also was studying at the university uh, symphonic percussion uh, with a fellow by the name of Telly Lesbines. And Telly used to be, he's no longer with us, but he was uh, the chief timpanist with the Milwaukee Symphony and also played assorted percussion. So Telly was also a jazz drummer. So I had the best of both possible worlds studying with Telly. Um, but as far as other drummers say I would meet while I'm on tour and that, a lot of the drummers were coming out of the punk scene or some some kind of rock and roll based uh, music, but uh, um, I didn't really meet all that many people that that had the jazz and classical background that I had. And also, my early introduction to performing was not even as a musician; it was as an actor. Oh, really? So, so I also had that to draw from. Yeah, I was I was doing stage performances from the time I was ten years old. And eventually, when I was at University of Wisconsin here in uh, in Milwaukee, I had a triple major. I was studying uh, comparative literature, music, and also theater. Jeez, you and stayed one, busy. I was staying really busy, <laughs> and I, and I tell you, my my real love was was acting and theater and film and and television. So one day, I was coming out of class. And I saw on the theater bulletin board that there was an audition for a male and a female for a theater company in town, which was a very well-respected company called Theater X. And the X meant the unknown. So they, they did a lot of developmental theater, a lot of what some people would term avant-garde theater. So I, I decided that I would audition. I auditioned. And out of the 35 males that they looked at, I actually got the the opportunity to join the company. And I did. And when I came into the company, my role was to replace Willem Dafoe, who, oh, wow. was, uh, who was here in Milwaukee uh, with the theater company. And this was just when he was uh, on his way to New York to, to film fame and fortune. 
that is amazing. So I took I took Willem's uh, place in the company, and I was working quite steadily as an actor for a few years, and then music took a, the back seat for a while until I started working with Brian, and then then we developed the uh, Violent Femmes rhythm section, which was just Brian and I at first before we ever met Gordon. We were working as a rhythm section for hire, and we called our rhythm section Violent Femmes. So was that your first band then? Did you do did you do anything uh, prior to that? Oh yeah, I, I had bands in high school. My my very first band was was a band called Fresh Lettuce. <laughs> <laughs> it was a crazy high school band. We even had a a theme song. I'm a head of lettuce, baby, rolling up to your door. I'm a head of lettuce, baby, not from the grocery floor. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. Oh my god. So, yeah, so so we did we did some early recording with that band, and and that was my introduction to uh, to playing in a band was was with uh, Fresh Lettuce with some of my friends from high school. Did you play uh, shows and stuff with them? Oh, sure. Yeah, we were real really popular in uh, my hometown of Racine. We played uh, dances. We played uh, oh little um, playgrounds uh, like entertainment uh, during noontime for for uh for kids on the playground uh and then, like i said we played dances at night and and then uh, a friend of mine who was in the band acquired a four track reel to reel and we started making recordings in and writing original material oh that's really cool yeah it was really fun it, that was uh it was a good education to have and and it really prepared me for for things to come so then you were probably, when it came to like playing shows and stuff, you were probably looking forward to that, coming from the acting world, being on the stage and stuff. Like, Did you have much stage fright in the beginning? Or at that point, like, since you did acting and everything before, you're like, oh, this is a breeze. Like, Perform it like this is nothing. Well, when, when you're performing as an actor on stage, it's certainly a lot different than when you're taking on the guise of a character and working in the context of, say, a rock band. Um, because... Playing in a rock band is different in that you're not really trying to get across an idea of, say, a playwright or a director. You're hopefully responding to what the audience is giving you, and you're also working with text and music that has already been written and is ready to present. Whereas in the kind of theater I was doing, sometimes it was improvisational-based. Other times you worked with all the greats, like say Shakespeare or Chekhov or Ibsen or Pinter or who have you, and you would rework old texts or old plays in a in a modern context. So in that way, when when people sometimes ask me also, so is it kind of the same thing being an actor on stage or or being a musician? And I always say no. I always use two different parts of my brain depending on which one I'm doing. That's interesting. That is really that is really interesting. With uh with the other thing though too, now that now that I think about it, also like you were talking about kind of feeding off the reaction of the audience, I would imagine, you know, when you're acting, there's a lot of times where you're not really getting reaction. They're sitting there watching. Whereas, you know, a lively music crowd, you know, you're you're gonna see people jumping around and moving in a way where, yeah, you probably don't see that so much in a uh you know, like in a theater or something. Right, because it's really based on collaboration and bringing the directors and the playwrights' uh, vision to, to life. 
Whereas, as you just mentioned, when you're in, in front of an audience as a rock band, you're kind of just holding on for dear life and, and, and trying to put <laughs> some kind of energy in front of the audience that they'll appreciate. No, that is that is uh, interesting. And I'm, I'm kind of happy that you brought up the acting now because, like, yeah, comparing that, I was wondering, and that makes total sense that it would be like two different parts of your brain. But that's now, is there anything, though? On the other side of that, are there any similarities? Like, there's anything that you feel like you could that you brought in to the live show and you started playing live from acting? Well, I think at first, probably the the role that I fulfilled in our trio was that of the manic, pseudo kind of a crazed Keith Moonish kind of a drummer. But eventually, that that faded away because. Well, there's certainly more to myself than just being a manic drummer. And I had a lot more to bring to to what Violent Femmes came to mean. And also being a musician who not only played the drums, but also played other instruments and also wrote songs, I also had that, that part of my creative life to entertain with. So it wasn't just the idea of being a drummer. It was probably... It took time, but I was trying to develop as a musician and as a performer. Um, I never gave up the the acting life. Whenever I would come back from tour, I would always find uh, if I had time time letting me do this, I would I would audition and and uh, perform as an actor in in different theater productions here in town. So I I always wanted to keep both those plates spinning in the air. Nice. That that's really cool, and I feel like it gives a. Uh... Like it gives it gives an idea of where you're coming from. Same with like the uh, early influences, everything, and like you know coming from a different place than maybe other drummers in like rock bands and punk and stuff. So yeah. uh, you know, I, I think that's I think that's really cool. Well, it's nice because it satisfied my curiosity because I wasn't just looking to become a famous drummer in a famous band. I I wanted to play music, and I also wanted to continue my studies as an actor and and hopefully someday make movies. Um, I've only been a part of a few smaller movies, but I've certainly done a lot of theater and I've, and I've done some television and, and I'm, I'm at, at this point in time looking to, to get back into the theater world. So, so that's something on my horizon again, that I'm, I'm very excited about. That's neat. Yeah. You're definitely not one dimensional. You, you seem like you have like definitely more than one interest. You're not just like, not just drums, drums, drums. You're like, no, I got, I, you re- you really spread out your creativity. Well, I try to. <laughs> I'm glad you're noticing. <laughs> but, uh, you know, we're, we're going to get into, uh, you know, the recording of Why Do Birds Sing? And, like, to start out, typically for the recording experience for you, are you someone who enjoys – I always like asking this because I get, I get both answers for it. And, like, are you someone who enjoys the studio experience going in and, like, toying around with the songs and, like, that, that whole part of it? Or are you someone who kind of wants to go in, get a good take, get it out, and just go play live? I, I like uh, all different facets of recording. My father presented me with my first little reel-to-reel tape recorder when I was seven years old. Oh, nice. And and ever since that time, I've had many different tape recorders. And I'm sitting right now in my studio uh, here in Milwaukee, which I've run for well, over 30 years. Oh, wow. So, so I've always been involved in music, not only as a performer and a writer, but as an engineer and as a producer. So I probably produced about maybe 50 records for different people. 
and I've engineered quite a few different recordings for people. So it's it's something that uh, I'm really jazzed about. I, I love the idea of recording and and uh, learning the techniques. And I'll tell you, one thing that's been great about the pandemic is being home for so much time and really diving into the world of YouTube, where there are so many fascinating interviews with producers and engineers, studio owners, uh instrument manufacturers, you name it. I mean, there's so much, such a wealth of content there that I never really had time to examine. And, and during the course of the pandemic, it's really been a watershed uh, educational experience for me. I've, I've, I've really tried to, to put it to good use, uh, the idea of having to stay in the house all the time. That's really cool. Are there any, uh, and that's, that's awesome. I didn't realize you'd like been uh so big of a part of like production and stuff for that long um like are there any producers like that stand out to you that it that have, like influenced you over the years or that like you were just talking about looking at these like uh interviews and stuff like are there are there any ones that you just you know like when you're when you're recording music you kind of look at their approaches and kind of maybe get some influence out of them well the number one name on that list would have to be george martin because my my love of the beatles started when my cousin told me to come over one day and he said he was going to play me this new single called Hey Jude. Nice. And I, and I, and I heard the record and I, I was a total Beatles fanatic then for the next seven years. That's all I listened to was, was the Beatles because I was coming out of the world of, of uh, theater and, and film and acting. That's, that was my concentrated point of study. And once I heard the Beatles, I had something else to to do with my time, and that was to to dive into the music of the Beatles, and and they certainly taught me, along with George Martin, not only about production but about songwriting, about the sonics of of making a record, um, organizational aspects having to do with arranging of records. I mean, there you go. That that's the University of the Beatles is a very vast university. <laughs> <laughs> You're not wrong. Beetle you. Beetle you. <laughs> I love it. Um when it when it came time to start recording Why Birds Sing, were the songs pretty much finished and fleshed out? Or I mean, was there much uh, working in the studio? And actually kind of go along with that. Did you guys tend to go in the studio with songs all pretty much finished, or what? Or was there some writing in the studio? Well, from the very first record, we had always prepared material to go in, but at the same time, we weren't adverse to to recognizing something that was just being formed, whether it happened during the course of working in the studio on other material, or if we had a germ of something that we hadn't quite developed. So we always we always left all those doors of creativity open, so to speak. But that was usually what we did. We we had a certain amount of material ready to go and ideas of how we wanted to record it. Usually what would happen, uh, Gordon had a notebook that he kept of uh, tons of lyrics all the way going back to, to high school, I think, that, that he had written. And also, I think, some ideas for chord structures and what have you. And so essentially he would bring us, and us I mean Brian and myself, he would bring us the songs, he would play them for us, usually on acoustic guitar, and then we'd talk about the song, and then we'd have initial reactions as far as arrangement ideas, and we'd throw those at Gordon, and we'd, we'd 
kick those ideas around a little bit so we knew at, at least where we would like to start once we got into the studio. And then we would rehearse the songs. Um, sometimes we would rehearse them in a rehearsal setting, uh, whether it be in my basement at my old house or what have you, or or something that uh, femmes like to do a lot, which I don't know if a lot of other people like to do this, but we would sometimes run through a new song backstage and then perform it for the first time oh my <laughs> in God. front of the audience that night. Yeah, just just do it. Yeah, I don't think and many just, bands do. <laughs> I definitely yeah, think that's just, unique. Just to dive into it and, and just see where it would take us. And during the course of, you know, on, on a tour, say working with the material, that would help us too to, to shape and form the material for, for the recording session. Oh wow! So there was writing on tour then too, which is which. Sometimes I talk to people and they go, "I can't write on tour." Where you guys are literally writing stuff backstage. Oh yeah, I mean that's one of the great things about the Femmes early on is that we always had material going. It wasn't like, "Hey Gordon, we're waiting for you to write some songs so we can make a record." We just always had material, and and Brian and I were blessed with pretty good uh, ideas of how to arrange songs given our, our knowledge of a lot of, of uh, different music that we had listened to over the years. So so we could bring in suggestions from all different worlds of music, whether it be country or, or different folk musics from around the world or free jazz or, geez, I mean, you name it. <laughs> I love that because, yeah, there's a lot. I mean, going back to it, like, again, you guys, you guys being in that rock and punk world and everything, these are not always influences that you hear in punk music like there's a lot of people who who would have no clue some of these well, like styles and stuff well you know especially at that time anthony this is before the onset of of people really being acceptable to something say using the term world music there there really wasn't anything like it at that time um and i i think that we were one of the bands that weren't afraid also to bring in religious aspects into our music which which some bands would look at maybe as a as a, a suicide maneuver, but but we wanted to bring parts of us into our music, and Gordon was raised in a religious family. His father was a, a pastor, so so he definitely had that as part of his makeup, and it did cause some problems with Brian sometimes because Brian was a uh, an atheist. Um, I. I looked at myself as a Catholic in remission. So so I had certain parts of Catholicism that I I held uh, important in my life. But at the same time, I was open to all different kinds of religion. Yes. Having, having been in the world of theater, where you, you start to really investigate and, and become curious about all different kinds of things. Yeah, I, I think that's one of the... And I, I think in hindsight... It worked out, and it's it's what makes uh, the band so unique. But like you're right, you guys you guys did interject parts of your personality in different things that maybe not every band would. But at the end of the day, there's not many other bands that uh, sound like you guys. You know, there's there's right. you're right. kind of in a category of your own, which I feel like is accredited to a lot of this stuff that we're talking about. Where it's like, oh yeah, again, not the uh, you're not taking the conventional route into like you know rock band 101 or whatever. You know, well, you, you know. The you know, the funny thing about it, Anthony, is that we cultivated our own uniqueness when we came on the scene because we realized we had something there that really wasn't readily available in all kinds of other music groups at that time. 
we were very adventurous. And I think from my standpoint too, what I brought from the avant-garde or experimental theater world was the idea of, hey, you guys, listen, we can do whatever we want to do. We don't have to worry about fitting into uh, any kind of a mold, like say, well, we have to be like the Rolling Stones or or uh, the Velvet Underground or, or whatever it would be. We were really into trying to find out what our sound was. And it just so happened, what I mentioned before, Gordon had this wealth of material and a lot of the material defied description where we could put any kind of a skeleton inside this material and and create a different kind of Frankenstein, so to speak, where it wasn't just, oh, that's a country song. We got we to play it like a three-chord country song. We would take certain songs and say, well, what if we did it this way? Or when it got to this part, if if this came across at, at this particular time, even though maybe sometimes we th- we're a little bit hesitant to to really follow our hearts, but the more we did, we we found out that the rewards were really great. It was it was really nice to feel as though we are in the vanguard. We are doing something different, and I I think to this day there's a lot of bands that were happening at that time that really owe Violent Femmes a lot. And I don't think in many ways we've ever been given credit for, for opening up people's minds to, to a lot of different things. I would, and, I would uh, heavily agree with that. And, and that's my, that's my commercial for Violent Femmes. <laughs> that's a damn good commercial. And I, but I, I, I think you're, I think you're right. Cause again, like, there's not a band like I mean I I've loved you guys forever but like even even thinking more like when getting ready for this interview thinking questions thinking different things I don't know what to compare you to I don't know what bands like which at the same right. time is is cool because you know I don't know that people take take as many chances like I don't you know we have a band a lot of bands take influence from you but I don't I don't know like that that anyone would would take that chance like you said where it's like we're just going to do our thing. Like it doesn't, is it popular? Is it what everyone's doing? No, but we're going to do it. We're going to see what happens. It doesn't have right. to be, you know, like in a mold. But- yeah. We were always trying to move forward. We weren't waiting for people to catch up to us and, and, uh, and make us popular. We, we were, we were popular amongst the three of us. <laughs> you know, the way, the way we, the way we looked at it, we were really having fun. And when we started to make some headway and people started to notice, it was a real, a real good, uh, pat on the back and and uh it's it certainly gave us more courage and and confidence and in going forward with uh, a lot of our experiments having to do with putting together musical styles and and uh dealing with different kinds of text and in the uh, course of the songs and and also the way things were recorded Uh, i mean all, all of that came into play and it was it was really exciting uh, for for the three of us for a, ma- a matter of time. But then I think what happens with a lot of bands is you start to uh, get too familiar with one another and familiarity breeds a little bit of contempt, as we know. And then also there's the idea of money coming into the equation and then also wanting to do other things because certainly speaking for myself, I definitely wanted to return to the world of theater and and uh, also try to get into film. So, so there was a lot of things that contributed to 
not only the the growth of the band but also the uh, the the eventual decay of the band where were you guys like like obviously this uh white bird thing ended up being your last record with the band and you were still around for a few more years but like where where was the band's relationship around the time of this record were things still good or were they kind of were were things kind of dividing like like you seem to kind of be talking about right now I think we all appreciated the time that we had to ourselves at this time and it was almost as though you had to punch in at work to go on tour um it's not like it was 100% bad but at the same time for the reasons I just mentioned people were starting to have other thoughts about maybe what would make them happy mm-hmm. um and in a way I I mean I look back at it and I'm I'm sad because it's a story that that affects a lot of groups of people that are getting together for creative endeavor. Uh sooner or later you just you just run out of uh not only patience but uh seeing a way forward. Uh and and you feel as though you're stifled and and you have to have others around you that maybe will give you new energy. and maybe you want to follow a a train of thought that's that's not shared between three people. And and two, I mean at, at this point, I mean this is your fifth record. You guys had been together for what I mean close to almost a decade at this point. Like you you've been around a while by the time uh Oh yeah, and we played, I tell you, when our our first years together, we played anywhere everywhere USA or in the world. Nice. We were we were working a lot. Did you uh did you continue like that's a like for me personally like I I'm 28 so like I missed I I became a fan way later so like context right. for me with this yeah like did you did you continue cuz from what I can tell you seem like you toured a ton like when you guys were together you seem like that whole run you were you were basically touring minus like I know you guys took a little break uh in between there in the 80s for like what like a year or something like but besides that it seemed like you were very very busy the entire like lifespan of that of that band. Yeah, it was it was a working bad be- band because we made a lot of our money touring and selling merchandise, not so much money off off of the recordings. So it was uh it was something we had to do. I mean, it it was part of the makeup of of trying to survive. Yeah, the uh what was I going to say? Even uh Like for this record was there a lot of touring when it came time once uh, White Bird Sing came out like did you guys tour a lot off this record? Oh sure, sure. Yeah, and and we were lucky enough too that we had a couple songs that got on the radio. I mean, we had a a version of um the Culture Club song Do You Really Want to Hurt Me? Great cover. And, and right, I love that cover too. And and actually we have heard from Boy George that that's his favorite cover of any any band nice. that has done a Culture Club song. So that's cool. Uh and also we had a, a a minor hit in our song called American Music and there was a a real interesting video that was done for that piece too. So I was going to say did you see because like American Music yeah is definitely one of I would say the band's like biggest singles like did you do you feel like you saw a change when that came out and that got popular like do you feel like you saw more faces at the uh shows or like hearing the band more on the radio and stuff? Well, we were starting to hear us more on the radio uh, uh, and I I should I should probably contextualize that um on regular radio, not just college radio. We were we were mainstream. starting to get it yeah, we were starting to get across to a little bit of the mainstream pockets here and there. Um 
But uh, as far as audience size, after a certain point in time, after Why Do Birds Sing, or excuse me, after uh, The Blind Lady of the Naked, we really had uh, quite quite a a big surge in, in audience numbers. We we were starting to play in, in bigger venues, and I think the word was was really starting to get around that uh, that we were here to stay. That uh, here we had a another record out, and and it wasn't just a passing phase. That we were we were going to continue to write new music and hopefully get the backing of our record company. You know, that's kind of a unique thing with your band, too, which I hear a lot of people talk about how, like, you were a word-of-mouth band. Like, so many people didn't hear you first right. time, like, on the radio. It was a mix, it was a mixtape or something, which is quite amazing because when you think of context, this is pre-internet. This isn't, like, right, sharing right. on your Facebook wall, hey, I like this band or something. Like, do, so, so do you feel like that was true? Like, were you very much just a word of mouth band you feel like back in like the eighties and nineties, that's really how a lot of people uh, kind of found the band. Oh yeah, definitely word of mouth. And of course, college radio, college radio really broke us. And uh, we were also, as I said before, willing to tour all the time. So when we would come to a little college town, you know, we'd be there on the radio and and, uh, we'd play live and then we would do the show that night uh, and and that was just part and parcel of what we were doing to try and become a band that was uh, going to have some kind of life. So it wasn't just something we did for a summer and then it was over. And um, yeah, thank God for college radio and some of those young disc jockeys that that really helped to put us out there. And I think people realized too early on when they saw us that if you wanted to see Violent Femmes, you had to see Violent Femmes. There wasn't another band that was like us. If you wanted to see R.E.M., there were some other bands that were kind of like R.E.M., oh, right? Totally. I mean, right. And and uh, we, were, we were just uh, very unique unto ourselves, these strange psychedelic farmers from the Midwest that <laughs> played, played this crazy kind of music that, that especially at, from time to time, incorporated what I would term as free jazzistic improvisation. And you didn't have that in other bands at that time, especially rock bands in that context. They would look at that as, well, this is the way to alienate our audience if we did that. But we looked at it as a way of this is expressing our, our musical souls because so much of what we did was based on improvisation. You- um, the songs The songs had song structures, of course, but we always left pockets in the middle or at the beginning or the end, or maybe just starting a flight of fancy, not even knowing what we were going to play and just improvising in front of an audience. And that's something that rock bands didn't do, especially rock bands that had one set and that's the set they played for this tour. And that's all they did. We didn't do that. We never had a set list. Oh, really? We went on the, we went on the stage. We didn't know what we were going to play. Nice. Would you just have like a repertoire then? Just like, hey, these are the songs oh, we yeah. play? Oh, God, yes. Yes. That is, that is so cool. Now, like, do you think then that's why like college radio and college every, like kind of embraced you? Because like you said, you were the unconventional. You guys would throw in this like jazz stuff, like things that maybe the mainstream in the beginning wasn't as welcoming to, that maybe college was a little more, you'd find maybe op- more like open-minded people who would like take a chance on that stuff. Yeah, I think there was more fertile minds in the college. 
and also the curiosity aspect was running just as rampant as it was for us. We were curious about life, of course, and and all different kinds of musics that we could experiment with and present to an audience. And I don't know how many times um, people after shows would would ask us where our music came from. And we said, well, the music comes from the three of us, but what has come before us is being filtered through us. So, so it's not as though we're creating something just out of a fog. I mean, there, there is a basis for what we do, but, but it gets filtered through you and, and it takes on a different uh, form of expression then. Yeah, it gives you that unique sound. It gives you, you know, that that's where the that's where the sound comes from. You know, you kind of like mixing all those influences together, and then what you learn eventually, you know, taking your influences, and then what you get out of that, making your own unique sound, and right. you know, then putting it together as a trio, and there you go. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but uh, for for the record, for Why Do Birds Sing, uh, I know you, I know you recorded it with uh, Michael Beinhorn, who was a guest on here a few years ago. Where'd you guys record the album? The uh, album at. <laughs> Well, mostly in Los Angeles. We did a lot of the recording with Michael at American Recording, uh, a studio in Woodland Hills in Los Angeles. Um, This was a studio that I think the band um, Three Dog Night recorded a lot of their hits there. And I think the engineer and producer who worked out of there and might have even owned the studio was, I think his name was Richie Polidor or Podler or something, but uh, we more we worked uh, mostly there. But then we did some some other tracking at Sunset Sound in Hollywood, and then we did some mixing at Larrabee. And then when we went out to New York to work with uh, Eric E. T. Thorngren on a couple of the singles, though, why do excuse me? Uh, do you really want to hurt me? And American Music, we worked at the Hit Factory in New York. Oh, nice! But then, but then we eventually came back to Milwaukee, and we did some recording at our friend Dave Artanian's studio here in Milwaukee, which is called the Perversion Room. Um, we had we had signed on to work with Michael Beinhorn, and we did pre-production with him, and it seemed as though things were going pretty well with Michael. Uh, but then, when we got to the mixing phase, uh, the engineer that we were working with is Susan Rogers. And she was a sweetheart. And, and of course, most people know Susan Rogers because she was uh, a, a very influential producer with Prince. Oh, nice. Um, yeah. But anyway, um, we were under a deadline and we were trying to get the record mixed because we had to go back to Milwaukee. I think we were getting ready to, to go out on the road again. So we had to get the record finished. But we were having some problems uh, translating ideas to Michael and, and Susan so eventually what happened was when we got back to Milwaukee, we decided that we had to remix the record. And so we remixed the whole record in Milwaukee with our friend Dave Vartanian to get the sound and the uh, the atmosphere that we were looking for. Uh, obviously, this did not make Michael Beinhorn happy. <laughs> and and a, because I was the oldest one in the group, it was left to me to call Michael and tell him that we were going to take the record away from him. Oh, no. So that was sad. That that was a sad uh, conversation I had with him. But um, I think we were an odd bird for Michael. Michael was more 
akin to working with rock bands and we ain't a rock band. I mean, we, we play rock music, but we're not a rock band. Well, now I, I actually had this written down. I wanted to ask you, and I mean, I feel like in a way you just kind of answered that, but like throughout your career, I, and I was thinking this and I was thinking of questions to ask you about writing and recording of this. I feel like you could get producers who just didn't know what to do with you guys. Did you run into that? Cause just over either overthinking it, not knowing where you guys are coming from or what, but like, at, right. like you said, like with a rock producer or something going in and going like, they're just going at it such a different way when it's like, you guys are not like you just said, you ain't a rock band. Right. You and know. you know, I, I tell you uh, when we uh, were looking for a producer to work with us, possibly on the second record, hallowed ground, one of the people's names that kept coming up. And, and in fact, we had approached from him through his management was Tom Waits. Really? We thought we thought that Tom would have been excellent as a producer that for Violent Femmes. Cool. That would have been yeah. amazing. Yeah, I think he would have been the best producer for us. But unfortunately, I think he was he was busy working on one of his own recordings at that time, so so that wouldn't happen. Um, but we worked with Mark Van Hecke, uh, who I had worked with here in Milwaukee because. He was part of uh, Theater X that I had mentioned before, the theater company I was with. And Mark was uh, a composer that worked with Theater X. And then I got him involved with doing demo recordings with Violent Femmes because he had a demo studio in his apartment. But uh, Mark worked with us for a while. Then, of course, we worked with Jerry Harrison and um, and then um, Warren Brule, who was a friend of uh, Gordon's that we worked with for a little bit. But I really thought that that Tom Waits would have been the one. He would have really brought home the bacon, I thought. I can't tell you how much now you make me wish that there was a Violent Femmes album that existed that was produced by Violent, or by uh, Tom Waits. I know. That is such like a good combo. I've never, th- I've never thought of that combo together, but now that you say it, it makes total sense, and I think you're right. I think he would have... he would have totally gotten you guys. He would have understand what to, understood what to do with you. Right, you know? right. That is a uh, God. That really he could have he could have made he could have made the beautiful sounds ugly and the ugly sounds beautiful. I love that, and he and he would have done it amazingly. Right. That would, right. My God, <laughs> you got me excited for something that doesn't exist. Well, I, who knows? Maybe there's always a future. That's true. That is true. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> on a, I wanted to ask you too on a, on this record, but I feel like. One of the and it's a big compliment I feel like you give someone, but like you guys sound like on a lot of records like you're live, like you were playing live in the studio. Was there much live recording on a Why Do Birds Sing? Oh yeah, all our all our recordings start from a live footing. Uh, in, in in some way, the the first initial tracking session will be the three of us playing something, but all together in a room, and then we will build from there that's just the way it always worked for for violent femmes I, I mean in my in my career as a recording person i've 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 done it all kinds of different ways but but that seemed to be the the way that worked best for violent femmes to try and showcase that initial energy that you get from having three people playing together in a room this, uh, you know, on this record, I know you guys ended up moving from uh, Slash over to, uh, to uh, oh, I'm, I'm blanking now, uh, Repri- or yeah, Reprise, you guys right. signed to. 
Did you see a big difference going from an indie to a major, or was there not much of a change? Uh, not so much of a change because, for the most part, I, I know it's something that bands always like to complain about is the relationship between themselves and a record company. But all things considered, our relationship with our record companies wasn't really that bad. I think because we were such an odd bird, they did give us a little bit more leeway because they didn't quite know what to do with us anyway. So they figured that we would show them the way. And as far as Slash Records was concerned, and this is true because I've, I've heard from a number of different, different people that would know this to be true. But the reason why Slash Records was able to hang on for so long and become successful is because the Violent Femmes made them a lot of money. Oh, I can imagine on those early yeah. records. Oh, my yes. God. Yes. So once you start making someone money, they're they're apt to maybe let you have your way a little bit more. Yeah. Um, they still want to exercise some kind of control, but they got to they got to come to that realization, well maybe these these idiots really do kind of know what they're doing. <laughs> <laughs> For some reason people like the music. Yeah, which yeah, that right. is how labels right. should be. Like you would think you would think that was the way labels go. It's like, well, we signed you for a reason. People seem to like you. But, like, it does seem like a lot of bands, they kind of take everything that was liked about the band and, like, remove it. You know, that can right. definitely happen. So, right. So nice you guys did not uh, fall into that. <laughs> were there uh, were there any other labels, like, in between signing to a reprise? Were there any other labels that you uh, almost signed to? No, you know, we were always in the in the Warner family. That's that's just something. Well, I mean, before of Slash was an independent, but then they became part of the Warner family. But but um yeah, after after we got on Slash, we uh stayed with them for for all of our career. I I know after I left the band, they I think they they dealt with someone else for a while, but I'm I'm not exactly sure about that part of uh, Violent Femmes, but but like, yeah, like I said before, Slash was okay. They, you know, we had some problems, but not too many. And then Warner Brothers were were uh, were happy to have us on the label, and and we got along fine with a lot of people there. That's awesome. Yeah, you never you never know what people you get. You get a little bit of both. You can get you can get nightmares, and you get ones like nah, they were awesome. Like the major labels, right. you know. Sometimes major labels are great too. You know. Sure. But uh, yeah, it depends. It just depends on the relationship that you have with the people. Oh, to, well, and like you said, it sounds like they were level-headed. They didn't sign you going, this band might be like the next Beatles or something. Like, they're like, we're, right, we're going right. to see what they do, you know? Like, like they're, right. not, they're not your average band on the, on the radio, you know? Well, I prob- probably everyone was just as surprised as we were that, that we went beyond, the, uh, the, you know, just the initial record, that we were allowed to make a second record. So, yeah, it was, it w- it was all... Uh, kind of like a Schwab's drugstore story where it's a Hollywood dream come true. That's the way I always looked at violent femmes because on paper it shouldn't work, but, uh, <laughs> but, but for some reason it always did and, until it didn't work anymore. You know, like, like how far into the band, like when, when was it that you realized it, it was, uh, you know, it was going to be more than just kind of something you do for fun that like you guys were like, Oh, like we make a living at this. Like we're going to be, like, like we can do this. This isn't just like a hobby now. Well, when it got to the point, especially when we started touring almost, say, seven months out of the year. Jeez. And then what really reinforced it was, was when we got a little bit higher up in status and we could get a tour bus. 
then then it became really serious like oh my god we're on a tour bus and and we are touring all over america and then we're going to australia and then we're going to europe and so then yes yeah it it, it became a bona fide job yeah that that has to be crazy cuz yeah like talking to you like you said like in the beginning it sounds like it was just very much we're doing this for fun we're playing anywhere and everywhere we're playing right. for who will watch, you know, so that, which that's cool. I think that's, that's how the best ones end up. The ones who weren't, obviously you guys weren't trying to be like mainstream darlings or try to be what was going on in like 1983. Like it's not at all. You were, you were doing you guys and you know, it, it paid off. Yeah. We were just three misfits trying to make our way through the world. I like, what did you say earlier? Midwest psychedelic farmers. Or something right. like that you described yourself. I love that. <laughs> I want to I want to ask you, and I did not know this up until getting getting ready for this interview, looking stuff up, and I think it was amazing. I, I got to see some footage. I thought it was cool. Post-Violent oh. Femmes, I know you got to tour with a drummer, as the drummer uh, for Velvet Underground drummer Mo Tucker. I mean, how did that all end up coming about? How did you How did you end up playing with her and meeting her and all that? Oh, God, I'll tell you the story. It's a fun story. Um, Brian had heard through the grapevine, and I think this was, it might have been right after the first record, or maybe when we were getting ready to make the second record, Hallowed Ground. But we were on the road, and um, Brian had received, I don't know if he got a letter or something, but from Mo Tucker's daughter saying that she was a fan. Nice. So anyway, so anyway, Mo and her family at that time were living in uh, Arizona, but where was it? It wasn't. I'm not sure if it was Phoenix. Anywhere, anywhere, it was somewhere in Arizona there, and um, we were playing. And Brian had somehow gotten word back to Carrie. That was her name, Carrie Tucker, um, to invite her and you know, her family, if her, if her mom wanted to come and whatever else. So we're staying at this little flea bag hotel and it's the afternoon. And I think we were getting ready to maybe go do sound check. And there's a knock on my door and I open the door and there's this girl standing there with Mo Tucker. <laughs> and I was, you know, a huge velvet underground fan. So I just right away went Mo Tucker. <laughs> she's, she's, looking at, she's looking at me and she goes are are you victor are, are you one of the violent femmes and i said yes i am oh my god it, it's so great to meet you come in so they both came in and then i called brian i said hey brian come here uh mo tucker's in my room <laughs> so uh, so he came over and uh we were hanging out and just we just became fast friends and and later that night we were playing at this place that uh oh what was the name of the band that we were playing with it was some crazy band um anyway i can't re recall right now but where we were playing this particular venue they had a boxing ring and and the band played inside the boxing ring <laughs> and the audience was placed all around the boxing ring that's where the audience stood <laughs> That's amazing. So it was, absolute, it was absolutely crazy. And to top it off, I, through my powers of persuasion, I 
convince Mo that she should come and sit in with us that night. <laughs> nice. So she said, she said, I don't do this. You know, I never, I never do this with anybody. I don't, I don't do this, but I think she liked me and I liked her. And I said, come on, we'll just have fun. And you can just play the floor, Tom, and just, you know, play in a couple songs. Just, you can just bang away. Don't, don't have to worry about it. So she did that. And it was a blast. We just had her. Oh, Sun City Girls was the name of the other band, which was a real strange kind of amalgam of different kind of crazy um, Arizonian musicians. <laughs> but but anyway, um, so then we just became really good friends after that. And it got to a point where she called me and said, hey, Victor, would you like to come and, um, and maybe play with Sterling and I? And... Uh, <laughs> Nice. And Sonny Vincent and uh, this other other guy, uh, uh, John, uh, what's John's last name? Anyway, he was uh, normally the drummer, but he was going to play bass for this tour, and I was going to handle the drum set, except I did play bass on a couple songs. Um, so I said, sure, Mo, I'll call with you. So, so, yeah, that was really fun to go out and play drums for Mo Tucker and her singing and playing rhythm guitar. She was a great rhythm guitarist and, and also Sterling and hearing the stories from these two about the velvet underground <laughs> and, and then just playing music with them. And uh, it was just a dream come true. It was really fun. And then later on, Mo made a record in New York called I spent a week there or oh, no, I think the record was called I spent, I spent a month there the other week or something like that. It was some crazy <laughs> title. Uh, but anyway, it was a crazy record because Brian and I, the Violent Femmes Rhythm Section, were on the record. Mo was on the record. Lou came in, and he guested on a couple songs. Sterling was, of course, there playing. And then later on, um, John Cale came in. And, oh, my and God. Some, and did some viola work. Like so on this Velvet underground there. Well, so on this record, you have the Velvet Underground with the Violent Femmes rhythm section. <laughs> that is so cool. Yeah, if you haven't heard that record, find I've that not. record. I have to go yeah, listen Mo, to this. It's a Mo Tucker record. I have to hear this. That is amazing. And yeah. it, it makes sense too. Then, so she was yeah. she was an influence on you then, because like watching those videos from that tour, there's a few like uh, like grainy ones on YouTube, but they are out there. Right. And your drumming is perfect, and I feel like you're kind of playing in that like velvet style. And when I watch it, I'm like, that makes total sense because there's another rock drummer who didn't play. She wasn't playing hi hat and snare like she's playing that floor tom with the snare and doing, right. You know, like she was another one who was an unconventional kind of drummer in a rock band. Like, so yeah, I assume... well, she was she was an inspiration. I mean, not only was she a female, but also that's true. She stood up and played drums. Yeah, that's and, right. and that's uh, something that that I I really dug that idea of doing that, and of course, as you know, I incorporated that into Violent Femmes. Um, but but she wasn't the only drummer that I saw standing up playing. I mean, of course, there was a lot of Latin drummers that stood up and played timbales and stuff and congas, but uh, also Gene Vincent, his drummer stood up and played snare drums sometimes with brushes, and Gene Vincent and the Blue Caps. Uh, were the model for Brian and I as far as the rhythm section Violent Femmes. We love Gene, Gene Vincent. And uh, some of those early records, if you listen to it, you'd go, oh, my God, it sounds like the Femmes, the, uh, the instrumentation. Really? See, that's another yeah. one. I have to, I'll, I'll have to go check this out as well. That's yeah. cool to, like, hear the blueprints yeah. of your music. Yeah. You know. Those are the beginnings, right. 
outside of which, and I got to say that is so cool. You got to again work with uh, Sterling and Moa and all of them. That is that is really cool. Was it just one tour? Yeah, I just did one one uh, pretty long tour with them. Yeah, that is really cool. Did you but do it was really fun? Really fun. And uh, Moa is such a great person to be around. You know, it's funny because I'm doing some research right now. I know Todd Haynes has this film coming out about the Velvet Underground. And I'm trying to reestablish contact with Mo because I've got a phone number for her that for some reason doesn't work anymore. And she doesn't really have any presence on the Internet. So I'm in a quandary to try and get a message to her because I miss her. I haven't talked with her in a few years. And uh, I'm just thinking I, I should I don't know why I'm feeling this that I should make contact with her again. That yeah, and you're right. It is kind of hard because yeah, she's not on. As far as I know, I don't know anywhere on the internet that she's at. Yeah, she's I'm at. gonna have to do some more digging and maybe find the the publicist uh, for this new film and see if I can go through that publicist. That's really cool. Out outside of uh, outside of drumming and percussion, I mean, I know you play other instruments. What are some of the other like main instruments you would say that you uh, play outside of drums? Well, I do some keyboard work, uh, guitar, a little bit of bass. Um, and all those things I, I play in a perfunctory way. I'm not a real gifted musician, but I certainly can use instruments to, to write songs and to, to, play, to play basic parts. But, but I would say drum set is, is of course, my main instrument. Um, I also sing and I, and I, and I write songs. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'd have to say the, the most facility I would have would probably used to be on a guitar, but now I've been playing more keyboard oriented stuff in in the last few years. Did you find yourself picking it up more during like COVID at all? Like, did you notice yourself playing piano more than maybe you had prior to that? Uh, Not so much. I was into more writing uh, during the COVID and also recording um, a couple records on my own. One record called Transophone, which is an EP. uh, And that's almost like a singer songwriter thing. And then the last record I put out late last year, uh, was a thing called spoken drum and it is a uh, spoken word with percussion accompaniment. Oh, nice. So, yeah. So those are the last th- two things I've released other than the 1913 material that I've released, which is uh, 1913 is a, a band that I have or a, a duo, I should say with Janet Schiff and myself. Janet Schiff is a very fine cellist and I play usually a different kind of drum system depending on what we're doing. Sometimes I'll just play a snare drum and a floor tom and a cymbal. Other times I'll play a full drum set. Uh, It just depends on the venue and and, uh, what kind of music we're playing at that particular point. But that's my main focus now is is playing music with Janet. Now, how long? You've been doing that for a little while, right? How long is 1913 been around? Oh, close to 10 years. Oh, wow. Wow, yeah, Yeah. you've been doing that a little while then. How? Yeah, we have three, we have three records out, and we're working on a new one right now. I didn't, and I didn't realize about the studio. That has to be great, being able to just kind of go record music when you. Yeah, want. I can just I just go upstairs anytime I want, <laughs> and I've, I've got a beautiful studio. I used to have a full fledged analog studio with the Sony MXP three thousand console. That was a thirty six channel console. Oh, nice! And then I had an MCI twenty four track two inch machine. So it was a full commercial studio, which I rented out. Uh, I mean, it was a commercial facility. But then about uh, close to close to maybe eight years ago, 
I got rid of all that equipment and uh, I just stripped down and now I have a just a small um, digital workstation that I do all my recording on. I mean, that that has to blow your mind, right? Like being like coming from a time where like we talked earlier, like when you got like your four track, like back in the day, that's home recording. That A four track is your home recording to now being able to like you make a full fledged, fully produced album in like a home studio. I mean, that that has to be like mind blowing watching like recording techniques and just technology and stuff change throughout the years. Well, you know, there is a danger, though, too, Anthony. And I've, I've certainly noticed this in that. Just because people have the equipment doesn't mean they have a knack to use the equipment. Um, the most important thing about a recording engineer is the connection between the ears and the brain, I think. And some people think that just by following certain things that they've heard to do or just trying to get by with a very rudimentary sense of what it means to record or how how signal path works, um, how equalization works, compression, limiting, uh, speaker selection. I mean, all, all these things that really take years to understand as an engineer. Um, sometimes, I, I probably be just because I've, I pride myself on being a pretty good engineer, that a lot of people nowadays think that they can just get a microphone and, and some way to, to keep the information and, and they can make a record. And of course, yes, they can, but is it going to be something that someone else wants to listen to, or is it just essentially uh, an exercise in vanity? I mean, those things aren't so bad, but the way I look at it is I, I really want to be intimately involved with the sound and have people ask me, how did you do that? Why does it sound that way? You know? I like I like that, and like... Do you feel too, because with home recording like that, and I think you're absolutely right, like being able to just, just like, it, it's not just hitting a preset or hitting a button in Pro Tools or whatever you're using. Like, there's an art form to it, and, and it is something that should take years to really get good at. Do you feel like music gets heard at all? Like, like because with that being home, like doing home recording, I notice more and more people don't have producers and kind of, you know, they self produce it, but I, I right. kind of feel like that hurts too, because sometimes. That outside voice, you need you need someone who's not you know the three guys in the band or the four in the band or whatever. I think I think that's another thing that might be lost in modern music is that outside you know like someone really being able to tell you who's not you know who isn't who's not going to have a biased opinion. Someone who's outside of the band really actually helping you know kind of aid along the recording or how something should sound or if it's good or not. Right. Well, it comes down to the caliber of the people that you're dealing with. You can have a good producer and you can have a bad producer. Uh, and they can be either good or bad depending on what the circumstances. I found that the, the best producers really try to encourage to get a performance out of the people they're working with without resulting to trickery or lies or or to uh, ulterior motive that, that it, it comes from a purity. Because I, I really think when you're given the keys as a producer, you have to address all kinds of things, not only the mechanics of, of music, but also the mechanics of having relationships with people. And sometimes a good project can go bad fast because you just don't have that repartee between the, the uh, parties involved. And some producers just don't have that, that gene 
where, where they can <laughs> where they can where they can really understand of how it works when you're trying to develop a relationship with people over a short amount of time, but you have to do some very important work together. Then um, it makes total sense because like even like I love interviewing producers. And there's ones that you interview where even just talking to them and the way they explain things, the way you talk to them, you do realize that, that is an art form. Because like you're saying, you have to be able to talk to musicians. You need, And that's another thing, being able to talk to musicians, not just people, musicians. Right. Understand, right. too, that this is their baby, that you're working with something that means a lot to them. And sure. there, there is something that, like, interviewing producers, there is kind of, I guess, if you want to call it an it factor or whatever, like what you're talking about, that you have to have. Because some... Some don't have it where you go, maybe they are being manipulative stuff where there's others where you go, oh, this guy gets it. Like maybe maybe right. they were in a band or something and they just learned how to talk and deal with musicians, you know, and that is that is something that takes talent. Like that's an art form in itself. Yeah, or or, or it's a way of understanding. It's 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 having an awareness of um dealing with people. Some people you have to deal with as adults, other people you have to look at as children. Unfortunately, no, that's a good. But point. that's that's this that's the psychology sometimes that you have to use, and it's funny because the beauty of music arrives in all states and forms in in the human being, and I found that you can work many different ways towards a shared goal. There's no one way to do it, and as long as you have that attitude which is something that I gathered from working with so many different theater professionals, then I, I think you're always going to be able to, to find something that's going to work. But if you just have one set way of doing things, you're not going to work that often, I don't think, because uh, you're going to sooner or later run up against some kind of people that, that aren't going to be comfortable working that way. Yeah, or or you'll find I feel like something like a violent femmes who don't don't fit the you know square that you may uh, you know like that that you kind of fit bands in that you're uh, working with you know right right but uh you know and you do it sounds like you've uh, recently been putting out some music is there anything upcoming that people should uh, keep their ears out for from you well like I just mentioned uh, 1913 is working on a new uh, uh, record right now uh, Janet and I have it maybe about 70% done, I think. Probably we're looking to get get it out sometime, I think, this winter. Oh, nice. And so then, before the end of and the then, year. Yeah, and then there's another project that I'm working on that, unfortunately, I can't really talk about right now because the the project itself has just acquired a record deal, and we're going to be making an announcement in uh, October. So Nice. So, so I can't really talk about that. But it's with some... Uh, it's with some other people that I think um, music lovers are going to kind of be surprised that we're putting our heads together. Oh, that's exciting. That is definitely uh, for people listening. I keep an, keep an eye out for that because you'll be announcing that uh, here in like a month then. Outside mm-hmm. of music, are you working on any uh, anything creative right now? Any uh, projects that you're doing? Uh, keeping up on my drum studies and then also doing a lot of educational research via YouTube um, and then being part of my family. And, and uh, I've got a couple of grandkids now, so that, that uses some of my time. Um, but I'd have to say at this, at this point in my life, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. 
That's awesome. And it does. It sounds like you stay, I mean, very busy. And as far as creativity goes, it sounds like you have more than enough outlets to get out. Uh, you know, any, anything that you want to do, it sounds like you have some kind of outlet that you can do it with. Yeah, I've been fortunate in my life that I've been around a number of people that have really helped to assist me on my my quest to not only become a better musician, but also to become a better actor or or director or producer, what, what have you, engineer. That is that is awesome. And uh, you know, as we close up here, I have a few quick short questions about sure. uh, why do birds sing? I mean, overall. Mm-hmm. Where does this record sit for you when it comes to your favorite uh, Violent Femmes records? I mean, where where is this album for you? Well, you know, I'd have to say, Anthony, that there are certain songs on all the records that I absolutely adore. There's one song in particular on the Hallowed Ground record called I Know It's True, But I'm Sorry to Say. And I think that's one of the most beautiful songs that Gordon's ever written. And I really love our harmony singing on that particular song. Um, there's another song on the album called Three, called Outside the Palace, which I think is the most Dylan-esque song that Gordon ever wrote. And that's also one of my favorites. Um, here on, on Why Do Birds Sing, let's see, I would have to say, oh boy, a um, couple of them. Lack of Knowledge is, is a song that I like. It's a good one. Yeah. And then Look Like That, which was a song that we used to open our shows quite a bit when we were touring this record. That is one of my favorites on the album. That is definitely yeah, one of my I, favorites. Yeah, I really I really like that one. That's 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 got a lot of the Femmes uh tongue in cheek kind of humor in it. It also doesn't end the same way it starts. Like it goes somewhere where you wouldn't expect it. It's a very violent right. femme song in that way where like you guys end I think in a different place than where you start with that. Yeah, it's it's where we w- welcome the audience uh, to to the concert. We're meeting people, nice people like you. <laughs> <laughs> is there a, that it would? Is that like your favorite? I was going to ask you too. Another one I had like your favorite song off that record to play live. Is is that that sounds like that'd be a really fun one then to play live? Yeah, it was really fun to play live. Uh, hey, Nani Nani is also a really fun one to play live. Well, I'd have to say, from from the drumming chair, all the songs that I play with Violent Femmes are fun because I had a knack for coming up with different drum parts. And sometimes it was kind of hard because you're just playing a snare drum on certain material. And how do you get across the idea or suggest the idea of a full drum set only playing a snare drum with brushes? That's I mean, a great there's point. A, there's, <laughs> right, but there's a way that I can suggest that, and it took me quite a while to figure that out. But but just the way I played the brushes, and like I said before, how I bastardized the, the jazz style, um, I, I could approximate that and suggest things. But, um, but it was fun because the, the Violent Femmes also afforded me the opportunity to play sit-down drum set, uh, stand-up drums, um, all different kinds of other percussion. Um, so, so in that way, I, I was always satisfied. I, I always uh, felt as though I could move forward, that I wasn't just trapped behind just one particular drum set. Do you have a preference when it comes to playing like a full drum set or like playing the snares? It more just depending what you're playing, kind of just. I, I think it's 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 uh, serving the music. So whatever I would think might be called for. 
um, th- that's that's what I'll probably play, whatever whatever drum system I think fits. Is it ever weird transitioning back and forth? Because I'm sure that's a different style of playing. You know what I mean? Like going back and forth, I'm sure you approach them a little differently. Well, you know, the drums are in my soul. I'm I'm 66 years old, and I've started playing when I was 16. So so I've been at it for quite a while. I uh, I don't really have to think about it so much anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Second nature. It's it's maybe even first nature. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, this is this has been a blast. I've been enjoying this. So I mean, people, where can people find you online? Where can they stay connected with you? Where can they go? They probably they know where to go find Violent Femmes. Where can they find nineteen thirteen? All the stuff you're working on. Where do people go well, find you? Well, we have a web presence, and if you just put in 1913, and that's not the letters, or excuse me, it's the word. Yeah, spelled out. Words 1913, right? It, it isn't the numbers. Um, and then just for myself, I have a website. You can find me, and I'm on on uh, Twitter and also Instagram. So, yeah, you, I, I'm certainly not hiding. I'm, I'm out there. No, you are definitely. I just I, and you're a good follow on Instagram. I just uh, discovered you a month or so ago. I was also. Oh, I was also going to say, I mean, compliment to, like you said, like finding your drumming on the snare. I mean, credit to you. Anytime I've been in a music store or just about anywhere where you play that opening line to blister in the sun on guitar <laughs> bass, somebody somewhere does your snare part, whether it's on their leg, whether it's on a counter, you will hear it in the distance. You can't play that without, without someone doing the snare part after. So I got well, you know. Agree. You know, that's another crazy thing about Violent Femmes in that here's the song, I, I suppose, that's that's most identified with us. And when you think about it, the hook of that song are those stutter flams that I'm playing. Oh, I for mean, sure. When, when, when Blister in the Sun is played at sporting events, and it's played at a lot of sporting events now, the audience claps with me. So that is the hook. And I, I just find that that's very, it, it's just crazy to me that that, that song in particular, uh, you know, which is talking about someone stumbling around on the street in some kind of a drug-induced daze, <laughs> um, ha, can become such a mainstay in these sporting events as, as far as some music that, that'll get the audience going. I mean, it's just it's it's fascinating to me. It's very wild. <laughs> yeah, going going. I mean, honestly, yeah, going back as as that kid playing on the streets in Milwaukee with them. I mean, I, I imagine, yeah, never in your wildest dreams you thought that one day those songs would be like played in sporting events and everything. Right. I mean, it's just crazy. Or that you'd be, or like now, like you're people like, let's talk about this album you put out 30 years ago. You know, like, yeah, like I know, even, <laughs> I know. <laughs> things like that have to be me, me putting myself in your shoes. I would imagine, yeah, it has to be crazy. Well, you know, one thing it, it does, Anthony, it, it makes me do research again. I have to go back and, and look at the records and really think about it and prepare before I talk to someone like you, because I, I want to, I want to do justice by the femmes. And also I'm very proud of our career. I mean, sometimes there's been disagreements and hard feelings between the three of us. But I think um, if you get the three of us in a room together, we would all say that we really love the work that we did together. And we're we're extremely proud of it. That's that is awesome. And I I, I mean, we kind of talked about earlier, but like, yeah, extremely underrated. And I think kind I mean, going same with like the Velvet Underground, a band who uh, I think a lot of bands after them taking uh, influence from. I definitely mm-hmm. think you guys too. They're uh, 
you definitely hear violent femmes and alternative and punk, the folk punk genre. I mean, I feel like right. that, that entire genre, I feel like right. uh, kind of begins with you guys in a lot of ways, you know. I think so. Which here's it now, now as we do close up, uh, another question for you, because I do see it come up a lot with people like the Violent Femmes, and maybe you don't care at all, but do you consider the Violent Femmes a punk band? Because I see people fight about this all the time, and I, I put you guys in that punk category. Like, maybe- Oh, God, yes, yes, because that was in the air when we were coming up, and we love punk bands. I mean, my God, you know, everybody from the Sex Pistols to the Clash to... I mean, you name it. We we were really hip to all that English stuff coming over, and of course the Ramones. Now, one of the greatest bands of all one time. Of, one of the great one of the great experiences that the Femmes had was we got to open for the Ramones a few times. Oh, nice! And, and it was funny. One time, it was the first time we were playing somewhere. Where was it? Somewhere down south of, of all god awful places. I'm not exactly sure it was <laughs> some some weird little. Uh, hole in the wall club and and uh we did our sound check and we saw that that uh the ramones were kind of standing in the room listening to us a little bit then they went in their dressing room so after we did our sound check brian and i went and we knocked on the door and joey opened the door and he looked at us and he goes hey guys look it's the violent themes <laughs> so we got to talk with them and and uh we became friends with them and then whenever i'd be in new york inevitably i'd see joey on the scene and uh i'd say hey joey it's me vic from the themes <laughs> <laughs> oh but he was great he was a nice guy i, I liked him a lot that's so cool. I would have loved to see. That's a, that's a, I would have killed to see the Ramones and the Violent Femmes. What did that yeah, what, Like mid 80s? Right. What'd you say? I said, what a pairing. That was really fun. Oh, I'd love that. Yeah, I can't imagine. That had to be a. Now, how was the reaction opening up? Did you get, because with the Ramones, I mean, I would love to see them live, but they seem like a band who people were there to see the Ramones. Oh yeah. Okay. Were they one of those bands were opening for them? Like the no. Luck, luck, luckily for us, uh, people liked us too. Oh good. So, okay, good. You know, and I, I'm thinking of you know, so, you know, these times in our history. I mean, even at the point where now you might not even know this, but at the point in time when when we were quite established, we got an offer via our tour manager knew the Grateful Dead's tour manager, so they cooked up this scheme where, hey, we're going to have the Femmes come and open for the dead. And and we were thinking, oh, my God, yeah, like this is ever <laughs> it's like it's ever going to happen. So anyway, there was this big show happening happening in Darien Lakes in uh, somewhere in the like the woods in Ohio. I think it was called Darien Lakes. It's not and in so, New York, is it? We have Darien Lake right up the uh, road here near Buffalo. No, I don't. Th- no, I, I. For some reason, I thought it was in Ohio. Maybe I'm getting it wrong. Darien Lakes. It was. It was something. I, I can't remember. I'm, I'm sure you can find it out. We got a big mind. arena up there. That's why I was thinking because they do have a. They do have an amphitheater up there. No, no, no. This was outside in the oh. middle of of uh, nowhere, where you know the Grateful Dead comes and they erect their stage. Oh. And it's like their their little city that they build, and then everybody comes. You know, like seventy thousand people come to nowhere to watch the show. So anyway, we got invited to open the show for them. So it was it was 
insane to be in the middle of this field on this stage, 90 degrees, but you're standing on the stage and the stage has air conditioning units built into it. So, so it's 90 degrees, but, but you're playing music and it's like 70 degrees where you are. (laughs) So, so, so we're playing our set and we only played, you know, like about a half hour as an opening act, but, um, it was so wonderful to look stage left and there you saw the Grateful Dead standing there watching us and Jerry and the guys are digging it. Like their heads are bopping back and forth and all that. So, so that, that was one of the crazy things where, Oh, this, this can't work, but it did. It did work. That's also, I feel like again, just to another, throw another compliment your way, accrediting to the violent femmes, how many bands can say they can open for the Ramones and open for the dead? And it worked. Right. And, and it right. actually worked, too. And it works. Right. You know, like even the Ramones opening for the Grateful Dead, I don't feel like may not end super well. You know? Right. Right. <laughs> right. I agree. I agree. But uh, no, this is this has been an absolute blast. I love uh, and I love that you do a bunch of different things. I like talking violent femmes, but I also like talking to someone who stays busy. You know, you like right. you said, you ain't, you're not just a drummer. You you do a lot of different things, which uh, is always really fun to talk about. But we're gonna play we're gonna play some songs right now. We'll obviously play some songs off uh, Why Do Birds Sing. We're gonna kick it off with American music. But before we do that, I want to ask you because we will play some 1913. What would be a song for you for people who are maybe hearing you or about to hear the band for the first time? What's a good intro to the band? Like if you're gonna play 1913 for someone for the first time, what's a good intro? Boy, that's hard to answer. I'm throwing you on the spot here. <laughs> I, I know. Well, not only being thrown on the spot, but also the variance in our material is so great that it's hard for me to pick out one piece because we're, we're very, um, very much of the attitude that we don't have any enemies in the in the musical world. And what I mean by that is we're friendly to a lot of different musics. But in some ways, playing live, we're limited because Janet plays a cello with a looper and I play some kind of a drum system. So that's what happens live for the most part. Sometimes we have a couple other musicians accompany us, and that would be a bass player and a keyboardist. But for the most part, when Janet and I go out, it's just as a duo. Whereas in the studio... Janet and I play other instruments, so the recordings tend to fill out a lot more. So consequently, if I was going to say, if you want to listen to something that represents 1913 in the recording realm, listen to this. If you want to come see us live and I think you'll like this song, it's a, it's a different thing. We can play them both. Do you, do you have uh, one for each? We can, we can definitely I, play I them both. I don't have any live material recorded. Uh, we haven't released. Uh, oh no, we can play a studio version though. We can still play something. Uh, oh, okay. Um, well, you know, there is a version that we did of uh, "Summertime," um, uh, the George Gershwin piece, and that features a singer in town here. Uh, her name is Manya, and that's a really good representation. But then there's also a song called "Arco." pizzicato which i think your your listeners may like it's a little bit more esoteric but uh, i think that really represents the eccentricities and also the 
uh, uniqueness of of 1913. So that that might be one to play, Arco Pizzicato. I like that. We we will play that. And uh, yeah, okay. I mean, I definitely I definitely did put you on the spot. I'm like, give me give me <laughs> one song that represents your entire catalog. <laughs> Right, right. <laughs> but but no, we'll we'll play those. I mean, we've said people can go find you online. Everything uh, as we yes. close out here. Is there anything else yes. you uh, need to add? No, it's just nice spending the afternoon here speaking with you, Anthony. And uh, to anybody who's listening out there, I hope this didn't come across as dead air. I hope you <laughs> found something interesting in our conversation. And God bless Violent Femmes. I love it. So right now, to celebrate 30 years of Why Do Birds Sing, we're going to play some Violent Femmes, play some 1913. Here's the opening track from uh, 30 years ago. Here is American music right here on the Power Chord Hour. Can I, can I put in something like, this is American music, take one. One, two, three, four. Do you like American music? I like American music Don't you like American music? Baby
Right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast, a block of violent femmes for you, all off their record, Why Do Birds Sing? Right there was my favorite song on the record, Out the Window. Before that was He Likes Me, and opening up that block of music was American Music. And I mean, that was so much fun. If you couldn't tell from uh, just hearing me talk to Victor, I mean, that was totally amazing. The man is a legend. I mean, Violent Femmes, absolutely classic band. You know, I mean... Really, I, I've been saying this on social media a lot since I've been like telling people that like you know he's been on. I mean, I've thought this forever. I've probably said it before, but it like reminded me of it again. The Violent Femmes, like their first record, if we're talking like debut records, that is one of the strongest ones to ever be released. Like that, that is up there with the Ramones' first record. That is up there with the Replacements' first record. That is up there with the first Bad Brains record. Like there, there are so many. There's there's just certain bands. I don't even say so many. There's certain bands who have like their debut. They just hit the ground running. And it's one thing to have like your first album be your best album, but these albums are like something different. Like that first Violent Femmes record, like what it did, it kind of what you know what I mean. It kind of did do. I think like the Velvet Underground did. You know, kind of kind of go like with the interview talking about uh, him playing with Mo and everything, but like. They kind of did the same thing in the 80s where it's like, I, I don't know, like initially they weren't maybe the most biggest band commercially, but it's insane how many bands the Violent Femmes influenced, including that first record. Like, I mean, just like the first uh, Velvet Underground, which that one too, you want to talk about really strong debuts, the first, you know, Velvet Underground album I would throw in there too. That has to be an episode sometime. I, I, I did years ago, I think it was like 2017, I remember doing a all album openers playlist for uh, the radio show and a lot of those ended up being like the like like first albums like I noticed I was doing a lot of that like when I was singing like my favorite like first songs they were on some of like the strongest debut albums out there so I mean that would be a fun like topic to really get into but like the the like strongest debuts of all time and like most influential but anyways Violent Femmes have one of them I mean front to back that's one of those albums if you put it on like you gotta listen to the whole thing you gotta you gotta listen to every song it's just that good and, uh, you know, amazing to talk to the man who played drums on that record and all their other ones. I mean, Why Do Birds Sing? That is my, it's my second favorite Femmes record. I mean, the first one is my favorite Violent Femmes record, but uh, Why Do Birds Sing is like, I really, it kind of was like, it didn't sound like the first record, but it was kind of a, it had that same charm of that, like, you know, stripped back, kind of folky, kind of punk, you know, like clever lyrics and stuff like a lot of a lot of that charm from the first record, I would say, and uh, I really I, I love that album. It was awesome to talk to Victor about it. Um, they are actually releasing it. It's coming out, I think, pretty soon. But they are putting out a 30th uh, anniversary edition of uh, Why Do Birds Sing, and it looks like there's like tons of uh, bonus tracks and different like you know like remixes and or not remixes, but like other you know like alt mixes and stuff of the songs so that should be pretty cool i plan on grabbing that probably on a vinyl because i do not have that album on vinyl and that would be one that uh another one you know that's like so good front to back i'm like okay that's one to have on on a record you know because again i mean if you only like like half the record that that may not make sense but i'm like oh i like that whole album so can't thank victor enough for uh doing that an absolute pleasure i mean i can't I love I love when any guest obviously you want to be able to get along with the guest and uh, all that good stuff but it's like when you're interviewing someone who I mean you've loved their music forever and I mean just an absolute legend I mean you know from a huge huge band uh, could not be nicer 
could not be more down to earth, could not be just more chilled out. I mean, a lot like Greg Eklund, you know, like last week when we were talking to Greg, uh, Everclear's old drummer, you know, same thing where like, you know, the man has sold millions of records. He's played Madison Square Garden. He has a Grammy. Uh, you know, I mean, was on MTV constantly when MTV were still like putting bands on and stuff and uh, has zero ego, Could, thinks nothing of that. Like he I don't I don't think he even thinks about like when you're talking to him and I was like interviewing him stuff. I don't think he thinks of himself as like the drum, you know, like the former drummer of Everclear who played on all those big records. Like I he doesn't think of himself as like the multi-platinum artist, Greg Eklund. It's like he's just a musician and, you know, even in his 50s, he's like, oh, yeah, I'm still learning things. He's like, I'm just going to jump into shit and see where it takes me. And, I mean, that that in itself is inspiring. And, uh, you know, so really cool. Again, like I said, just another another good drummer, too. Another drummer who uh, has been in my record collection for a very long time and just could not be nicer. So uh, awesome to talk. I, I'm very happy the last uh, two episodes. I've been very uh, pleased with the last two guests. They've been just so awesome. I mean, really, really cool, and uh, people that I look up to. So it was awesome to pick Victor's brain, and uh, it was awesome to pick Greg's brain last week. But uh, thank you so much for checking out this episode of the Power Chord Hour podcast. Uh, if you want more, check out the radio show. We got new ones for you every Friday night on 107.9 WRFA in Jamestown, New York. If you do not live in Jamestown, have no fear. You can stream the station on our website, WRFALP.com. You'll see the big old streaming button there. And uh, check it out sometime. You don't even have to check out my radio show, though, again, Friday nights, 10, 10 Eastern to midnight. But uh, there's so many good uh, shows and stuff on the station, and it's so diverse. Like, whatever you're in the mood for, if you want, like, you know, you can tune into my show and hear, like, punk rock and college rock and indie rock and all that. If you want old school hip hop, there's old school hip hop shows. There's sweet. You want Swedish music? There's there's every week a whole hour of just Swedish music. Like you know, there's just there's like everything. There's like a little bit of everything is on WRFA and uh, cannot say enough good things. As uh, you know, just a great great station and for letting me do the radio show there the last five years. Which also to bring that up, uh, Victor. Speaking of uh, this week's guest, Victor. One of the first songs on our very first episode talking about, you know, the radio show did turn five this year, but our first playlist on the first episode, Please Do Not Go, was on there. So we did have Violent Femmes, which, uh, again, makes it makes it even cooler because, like, I can't remember every single song that was on the very first playlist, but there's kind of like I have a bingo card in my head where it's kind of cool to, like, interview someone from, like, each band that I played on the first episode. Like uh, John Easdale from Drama Rama, he was on earlier this year, and uh, I played anything, anything on the first episode. You know, like stuff like that, where it's like, oh, cool. You know, like you start, you just start thinking of things like that, including milestones. And like as we're talking, like the 30th anniversary here, you know, the fifth anniversary of the radio show, and just like looking back at that first playlist, I'll have to look. I'm sure that CDR is somewhere. Like some in the episode too, I have a copy of the episode somewhere in a hard drive, but God knows where it's at. But uh, I would love, I'd love to hear it. I did recently find CDRs because I put all the playlists on. That's what I would put them on. I would burn them at home and then bring them. Uh, not, I say that like it's in past tense. I still do that. I literally did that for this episode. I burnt, I burnt the songs uh, that you just heard and put them on a CDR and brought them down here because uh, that's just how we do it here. It's medieval. It's, it's medieval times here. But uh, yeah, just really. Uh, I, I found anyway, I found these old CDRs and I think they went all the way. It was episode two or three. Episode one was not in there. I got excited because I thought it was. 
But the playlist for either episode two or three was in there and uh, was awesome. I remember, can't remember all the songs, but the opener was uh, Harvey Danger's Carlotta Valdez, which uh, I love that song. Which funny too, because I was on Twitter just before I found that CD uh, talking about how great that record is. Uh, Where have all the merrymakers gone? How it's like the greatest, it is the greatest record you will ever find in a, do- in a used dollar bin at a record store. Uh, that record, or really not record. If you find it on vinyl, it's going to be a lot more than a dollar. But if you find that album on CD, you're going to pay a buck. And it's like the greatest album you will ever find in a used bin and uh, totally unappreciative or not not unappreciative. The album is not unappreciative. It is unappreciated is, uh, is what I meant to say. Very, very good album. But uh, yeah, getting sidetracked, get back to my plugs, let you know where to find us. Uh, at, at Power Chord Hour. I know you're dying to know. Um, at Power Chord Hour on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. If you follow us, that would be awesome. I know on Facebook we're, uh, I think, two follow or two likes, whatever the hell it is on Facebook, uh, two likes away from uh, 300 likes on there. So that'd be very cool if you go like us on there. That'd be cool. Uh, but yeah, follow us on all those social media sites. I always have fun talking music with people. And uh, hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. If you listen to a radio show, send me song requests. I always take song requests. So uh, hit me up with some of those at that email. If you like some Power Chord Hour stickers, I'm sending those out for free right now. So just hit me up, powercordhour at gmail.com. We'll gladly send you some stickers, gladly play your song, uh, you know, your request or whatever. So, uh, yeah, I believe that is everything. Thank you so much for checking out this week's episode. Very, very, I mean, this was so cool. A total honor. Uh, hope to have Victor back soon. And, uh, you know, like he said, he has some new projects coming up that he couldn't announce just yet. So maybe once those are out, uh, maybe he'll come back. That would be really cool. I'm going to leave you with one. If you notice, I'd not play you a 1913 song yet like I said I would. I'm going to leave you with one because this is really, I like this piece. It is like, this is like eight, nine minutes long. And uh, like a really good piece to go out on. It is. It's more like a musical piece than just like a song. It is It is really good. And it's just a very, I don't know, it puts you in a very cool, like, like nice vibe, really cool escape. And uh, yeah, so I think we'll end with that. I think I'm going to leave you with this song. But uh, thank you so much for checking out this week's episode of the Power Chord Hour. And here is Victor's new band, 1913. Go check them out. They're on social media. Their music is on Bandcamp and everything. So, uh, and and Victor DiLorenzo, he like he said, he has his website too. And if you go there, it's kind of like a hub for everything. That'll kind of take you everywhere. But right now, from 1913, here is Arco Pizzicato right here on the Power Chord Hour podcast. Mm-hmm.